You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, my sister, uh, she's about three years older than me. She's actually here tonight. And uh, for us, like our prime shaping years were the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, during that time, that was kind of the era of when, when all these boy bands became really popular. Some of these bands like um, New Kids on the Block, that was really one of the first ones. And Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. I don't know, I guess y'all kind of like NSYNC. I don't know what y'all's, you know, bands growing up was. I don't know, was it, was it like uh, Aaron Carter? Jonas Brothers, anybody? Jonas Brothers? Okay. Uh, Little Bow Wow. I'm sorry, Lil, Lil Bow Wow, Lil Romeo, uh, Destiny's Child, that's, okay. Uh, Don't lie, freshman, I know some of y'all like Bieber. I know we don't have any Hannah Montana fans in here. Whoa, I thought y'all would be away getting counseling or something for all the stuff that's been going on. Anyways, a couple of years ago for my sister's birthday, I thought I would do something awesome. And so I bought her two tickets to the NKOTBSB. Find out how your love's been affecting me. Something like that. Anyways, uh, I, I got her tickets to the, uh, two tickets to the New Kids on the Block Backstreet Boys concert that was coming through Dallas. And I got them for her thinking, this is going to be perfect. She's going to think I'm awesome. She's going to take one of her uh, girlfriends who also loves them to the concert. It'll be great. Uh, and so I gave them to her. And then she comes to me and she says, hey, I want you to come with me to the concert. Which, of course, to her, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, me? Really? Aw. And I walk away thinking, well, that really backfired. <laughs> so I end up going to this concert, and I'm in American Airlines Center, me and uh, 20,000 other girls. And uh, I, it was, it was uh, I'll just be honest, now, I mean, it was, it was sort of embarrassing slash kind of totally awesome. Uh, and now I kind of know how you TW guys feel. Uh, I know how those conversations go. Don't, I, I won't act like I don't, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about either. Somebody says, hey, so what school do you go to? And you're like, oh, I go to TWU. Cool. Uh, what is that? It's college. No, no, no. <laughs> TWU, what's that stand for? Uh, Texas Women's University. <laughs> then there's this awkward silence because the person that you just told that to doesn't want to ask the question that everybody wants to ask. And, and so it's kind of awkward. And then you're like, you do know it's nine to one girl to guy ratio, right? And they're like, bro, that's sweet. <laughs> So it's kind of embarrassing, but totally awesome at the same time. And you guys are the smartest guys in the room. But anyways, I don't, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a boy band concert. I'm, I'm going to assume, guys, uh, that I'm alone on this one. And uh, it's, it's insane. I'll just tell you that. Crazy loud. You got to have earplugs. I, I mean, just picture 20,000 girls packed into this r- arena for two hours straight, screaming at the top of their lungs. I mean, you want to talk about lung capacity, it's crazy. And uh, there's some awkward moments too. I mean, really the whole thing is awkward if you're a guy because when New Kids on the Block came out and Backstreet Boys, they all came out together. I mean, these guys are like in their 40s now. And I mean, the first thing they do is they start taking off their shirts and they're doing all these, you know, dance moves and stuff on stage. And as a guy in the arena, I'm like caught in this weird moment of, okay, so if I look at the stage with these 40-year-old dudes dancing around with their shirt off, people are going to judge me. 
So maybe I'll just look somewhere else. But you look anywhere else and you're staring at girls that are there. So then I'm like, well, crud, now people are going to think I'm the creeper guy that came just to stare at the girls that are at the concert. (laughs) So you're caught really in a pretty bad situation. But prior to this concert, I, I really thought you went to concerts to hear music that you like to hear. And I can honestly say I've seen New Kids on the Block and Backstreet Boys in concert. I've never heard them in concert because it was so loud you couldn't hear anything they were saying. And I learned that you don't go to these concerts to hear them in concert. I learned that girls, they they really go to these concerts for two reasons. One, they go because it has been their lifelong dream to sing these songs along with their boyfriend in their mind (laughs) while they're with them in the same room. And so if they're not screaming, then they are all singing every lyric to every song in unison, and they're like, got their arms, you know, wrapped around themselves. That's the first. The second reason that people, these, these girls go to these concerts is, it is their wild dream that even if they're sitting up in the nosebleed section by some crazy, crazy thing that would maybe happen, it's their hope that one of these, their favorite Backstreet Boy or whatever on the stage will notice them, call them on stage, and in that moment ask them to marry them. They'll say yes. And then all of a sudden, this white horse will show up out of nowhere, and they'll ride off into the sunset out of the arena to live happy ever after. And so what they do is, they wear these, uh, they wear these shirts, they coordinate with their friends, and they maybe spell out different things, or the shirt will say, will you marry me, so-and-so, whatever their favorite BSB guy is. Um, or they'll bring a poster that has their phone number on it, hold it up in the air towards the state. That's when the creepy guys that are there are looking, getting the phone number, <laughs> writing it down to call them later. Uh, or they'll dress up like they're going to some cocktail party, even though they're, they're, they're going to this massive, you know, concert. It's, it's crazy. And then there's a few boyfriends who bring their girlfriends, thinking they're going to score some major points on doing this. And they, they get there, and the whole time they're watching their girlfriend, like, totally freak out, you know. They're doing this, like, bounce and these wiggly hands, and they're crying and stuff, and screaming the whole time. And so uh, the whole time he's like, what is going on? And then they get in the car on the way home, and she's like, so what did you think? It was awesome, right? And he goes, yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. And she's like, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, everything's, no, everything's not okay. What in the world was that? That was weird and awkward, crazy. And then they break up and it's over. <laughs> but based on my observation, based on my, based on my ob- ob- observation, there are about three levels of female boy band obsession. And uh, level one is this. I'm, we're going to call it the basic fan level. And you, you go to the concerts, you sing along, uh, you know, with all the songs at the concert. In fact, when you're driving around your car, and that song comes on the radio, what do you do? Crank it up, and you sing at the top of your line. I love pulling up at like stoplights and some girl is just singing all hearts, eyes closed, hands in the air like she's worshiping or something. But it's just in sync. Level two, uh, we're going to call you the emotional fan. Um, and you do everything that level one does, but you, you kind of kick it up a little bit. Um, you sing in your car, you do all that stuff, but you also have posters in your room of this band, and then you actually go and buy magazines that you know pictures the, of this guy is going to be in. You cut them out and make collages and stick those collages up on your wall. I hate to put my sister on blast, but she totally did that with, uh, <clears throat> in, anyways. Um, and then when you go to the concert, you get all emotional. Like, they come out on stage, and, and you just can't help. You scream, but then all of a sudden, you're crying for no reason. And then there's level three, creeper level status stalker fan. That's what we're going to call this one. So you do everything the level one does, you do everything the level two does, but then you like take it to a whole new level. And, uh, and some of the things that you do is, one, you get mad at other fans 
uh, who say things about your man who aren't true, and so you get mad at him, you get in fights with him and argue, and I don't know what else you do, but, uh, but then you also, when your man from this boy band is uh, dating some other girl, you actually write that other girl hate mail because that's your man and she's dating the wrong man. And then you just, uh, you just talk about him nonstop. You say things like, when he and I get married, we're going to name our kids. And uh, your friends look at you like, yeah, yeah, no, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Give it up. But people give themselves away so easily uh, by the things that they talk about. Sometimes it comes across as obsession. Sometimes it is obsession and there's problems with that. But, you know, it doesn't take very long if you're hanging out with somebody or talking to somebody, whether it's in person or over the phone, to discover what it is that excites them. It doesn't take very long when you're talking to somebody to figure out what's at the center of their thoughts. And you don't get even 10 verses into this letter of 1 Corinthians without seeing very clearly what was at the center of Paul's mind. It doesn't take but 10 verses, really not even 10 verses, to figure out what Paul was all about. 10 verses in, Paul has said the name of Jesus Christ 10 times. 11 if you count the pronoun him in verse 5 that he uses to refer to Jesus. 11 times in 10 verses, Paul has mentioned Jesus. It's very clear that everything in here, he's all about Jesus, but not just in his letter. He's all about Jesus in his, in his life and in his ministry. And the reality is, without Jesus at the center of the story that he was telling, nothing else would make sense. And we saw this last week. So we're kind of going into this letter, beginning our study here, that this whole letter, really what he's doing is he's saying to these Corinthians, there should be a contrast. These Christian Corinthians living in this culture that didn't know Jesus, he's saying there should be a contrast. He's saying you're living in a city, if you're a Christian living in a city with people who haven't encountered Jesus, there should be a contrast. And to us, he's saying, look, if you're living on a campus and you're a Christian, living on this campus that is full of people who are not following Jesus, there should be a contrast. And here's why. When you meet Jesus, you go from death to life. When you meet Jesus, you go from death to life. Has anyone in here ever been to a funeral before? Most everybody. It's like the difference between the dude in the casket and the dude in the pulpit. Consider the guy preaching the eulogy of the funeral. What are some characteristics of that guy? He's standing there, right? Probably moving around a little bit. He's talking, he's breathing, his eyes are open, he's interacting with the crowd. But then there's the dude in the casket. What, what are the characteristics of the dude in the casket? The dude in the casket, he's not moving, is he? He's not, he's, he's not talking like I am. That'd be weird. He's not breathing. His eyes are hopefully shut. This guy is captured in his dead body. And even though he's got clothes on, usually he's dressed nicer than the preacher. Those clothes are only, whole, are only covering up his dead body. I mean, when you consider the dude in the casket and you consider the dude behind the pulpit, there are some major differences. There's a huge contrast. 
I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter who's there. Unless they're smoking crack, they're not going to get confused between who's the preacher and who the funeral's for. Because there's a huge contrast. And if you read Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at it last week, beginning in verse 1, Paul says in the Bible, he says, you were dead in your transgressions. Am I right? Is that what it says? Is this weird? (laughs) He says, you were dead in your transgression. Not weak, not sick, you were dead. But then you get to verse 4, and what's it say in verse 4? Okay, I'll tell you what it says in verse (laughs) 4. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he made us alive. He made us alive in Christ. And that's the difference. It's the difference between the dead guy in the casket and everybody else who's at that funeral who's alive. There should be a contrast. And let me ask you this question. Does the dead guy in the casket know that he's dead? No. There's no brain activity. And here's the reality. There are people in this room tonight who are dead, but are yet to realize it. You've got some nice clothes on, but that's only covering up the dead person hiding on the inside. And I feel like I need to tell you this now before we get any further into this message and into this sermon. Jesus is safe, but dangerous. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is safe because it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. It doesn't matter what's happening right now in the present. It doesn't matter how you've screwed up. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. He wants you. This is exactly what we saw last week. God is pursuing and calling people like you. But Jesus is dangerous because if you truly encounter him, you will change. And so this ministry, this ministry is safe but dangerous. It doesn't matter. It's safe because it doesn't matter what you brought in here with you tonight. It doesn't matter what kind of junk you brought in here. You are welcome. But it's dangerous because I promise you, when you come in here, you're going to hear about Jesus. You're going to be introduced to Jesus. You're going to be offered Jesus. And if you truly encounter Jesus, you will never be the same. And so last week, the the message was last week, look, it doesn't matter how ugly, it doesn't matter how big your baggage is, God is pursuing you, he's calling you. This week, this is what you need to hear. God is pursuing you because you're dead and he wants to give you life. You look at Colossians chapter one, verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen to that. Pay attention to the details. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul makes it very clear that there are only two kinds of people on this planet. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. In other words, those who are dead and those who are alive. So you can forget about white, black, brown, polka dot. You can forget about rich or poor, tall or short or big or skinny. You can forget about all. You can forget about 
Pioneer or Mean Green Eagle. You can forget about uh, Cairo or Cairo or Tridelt or Pike or Fiji. You can forget about all that stuff. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is dead or alive, bottom line. And there's only one thing that can change your status. And he says it right here, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, or the word of the cross, is the power of God. The word of the cross is the only thing that can change you. In other words, the message of the cross, or this word you hear all the time called the gospel, the only thing that can change you, the only one who can change you is Jesus. And in this text we're looking at tonight, there's three ways that the gospel is described. One, it's foolish. Two, it's offensive. And three, it's powerful. The gospel is foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.18, I want to read it again. He says, for the word of the cross is folly. That word folly could be translated, it's foolish. So the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. A couple months ago, this summer, I was on a plane to Fort, La- Fort Lauderdale, Florida to teach at this camp in South Central, whatever, Florida. And I don't like talking to people on airplanes, but I'm sitting there on the, on the aisle seat, Spirit Airlines, which is like the worst airline ever. And, uh, you know, my knee's like up in my face. I can taste my kneecap. But I'm sitting there, and this guy next to me across the aisle, uh, Jason Mraz wannabe, he's got the little Jason Mraz hat on. He's, uh, he's got the, I don't know, those really skinny jeans and like a vest and all, I don't know, weird stuff. Anyways, but uh, he's, got, he's got some tattoos on, and you could tell just from uh, what he was reading, I won't tell you what he was reading, but, but just from what he was reading, you could tell that this guy probably was not a Christian, probably not a believer. But I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm totally bored out of my mind, I'm kind of looking over at his tattoos on his arm, and uh, I don't think he noticed, hopefully he didn't notice, that would have been awkward and weird, but uh, I'm looking at his tattoos on his arms, I noticed this tattoo, it's got some birds, and then these branches with leaves, and then it says something to the effect of, you're more important than 100 sparrows, or something like that. And so I'm looking at him, and so I just ask him, because I was bored, I want to talk to somebody. I was like, hey man, so what's up with that tattoo? And he's like, what tattoo? And I was like, that one right there. I touch his arm, and he's like, uh, the, the birds, and the, you know. And he starts to explain. I think he said something like he and his sister got the same tattoo. And I was like, oh, that's cute. And uh, he had some other description for why they got it. And then I said, uh, you know that's straight from the Bible, right? And it just, I got really awkward. He looks at me, and he looks down at his arm, and he has this face, he has this face on that's basically saying like, Oh, crud, and that's permanent, too. <laughs> so anyways, the conversation ended, and uh, so we go to get our baggage once we landed, and, uh, and, and we're standing there, and I see him waiting on his bags. I'm waiting on my bags, and, and so I walk over to him, and I said, so I figured, I, you know, since you have the Bible tattooed on your arm, I should ask you what you think about Jesus, and uh, he was like, uh, I didn't ask it, you know, in a mean way. <laughs> Just figured, hey, that's an easy conversation starter. You got the Bible forever tattooed on your arm. You must think something about Jesus. Anyways, I said, so what do you think about Jesus? And he, uh, he immediately you know, made it clear that he didn't think much of Jesus. And he, he explained you know, the philosophies that he believes in. And so I just you know, began to share a little bit of the gospel. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm standing there telling him, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, that, uh, that God sent this dude who was fully man, fully God, uh, born, poor family, um, was a carpenter. Anyways, lived a perfect life, said he came to save everybody from their sins, died on a cross, uh, was buried, then three days later came back to life. And as I'm telling him all this stuff, he's looking at me like, bro, you're crazy. And I'm, I'm thinking, that dude thinks I'm crazy. And so I stopped at one point. I was like, dude, I promise you I'm not crazy. Like, I have real friends and stuff. I know this message is a little bit crazy. And, and, and listen, the Bible even says that the gospel is crazy. The Bible even says it's foolishness. But you read on, verse 19, and it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 
and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It's amazing to me how many times I encounter people similar to him or I hear stories of you Encountering, encountering people similar to him who think and say, openly say, man, that's crazy what y'all believe. It's crazy stuff. Weird. Like, have you not heard or read of any of these philosophies or any of this stuff? Like, that's crazy to believe. I mean, even without philosophies, that's crazy to believe that. You know, they say that's crazy. But I can't tell you how many times I hear those stories of people saying that or people say that to me and then they come and they encounter Jesus and they're totally changed. About a year and a half ago, I met a girl after overflow in this aisle right in the back. Her name is Janice. I'm pretty sure she's here tonight. But I, but I met Janice, and uh, I, you know, when I see people I haven't seen before, you've, I've probably done this to you. I come up and just say, hey, my name's Austin. Who are you? Why are you here? And uh, I said, you know, what's your name? And she goes, I- I'm Janice. I'm an atheist. Just like that. She goes, I'm Janice. I'm an atheist. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so why did you come? <laughs> and uh, she goes, well, my, uh, my roommate's friend, I think this is right, my roommate's friend was inviting her, and so she came, and then she invited me to come. So I was like, well, shoot, I guess I'll come. I don't have anything else to do. I'll come. And so, uh, so I came. But I'm an atheist. That's what she said. I'm an atheist. She emphasized she's an atheist. I was like, well, that's awesome. Um, and I, I, we kind of talked a little bit from there, and, and she, said, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm an atheist. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe any of this. It's kind of crazy. Uh, but I'm probably going to come back just because I really enjoyed tonight, and it was fun, and I enjoy hanging out with my roommates. Uh, but I'm an atheist. And uh, <laughs> I was like, well, cool. It's really good to meet you. And uh, Janice, I hope, I hope to see you around. And as I walked away, I'm thinking, she's not going to be an atheist for very long. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't long. I mean, just a few weeks later. I think it was just a few weeks. I don't remember the exact time frame here. Uh, but she became a Christian. Uh, she was baptized. Now she's one of our community leaders. Somebody who said, that stuff is crazy, was totally changed. Um, there's, there's a guy a couple of years, I think last year, year and a half, about a year and a half ago, um, he came on Sunday morning and, and he was a first-time visitor. And so we get that information and, and, and I'll, I'll call some of those first-time visitors. And I called this guy, uh, I'm not going to say his name because I want to put him on blast, but he said, uh, I, I called him, I was like, hey man, so you came to FBC first time this week. And he was like, immediately he goes, yeah, uh, I'm not religious. I don't believe any of that stuff. My girlfriend, uh, she's from out of state and she's a Christian. She's in all that religious junk. And so uh, I just wanted to impress her, make, you know, make her think that I was going to church. So um, I made sure that when she was here, I took her to church. And I was like, well, hey, at least you're honest. I mean, uh, but we talked a little bit more. And, and, uh, and so that was the end of the conversation. But then about a couple weeks later, he calls me and says, hey, can we go have lunch? Because he had been back. He says, hey, can we go have lunch? And I was like, yeah, sure. And we talk over lunch. And over lunch, he accepted Christ. Same dude that was saying, that's crazy. Yet when he encountered Jesus, he was totally changed. And a few weeks later, we eventually baptized him. And his life is no longer the same. The gospel, it's, 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 it's foolish. And so, because it's foolish, and I, I'm sure you've been in the situation where you're sharing the gospel and you're, you're thinking, they think I'm crazy, and I kind of sound crazy. I'm sure you've been in that situation. And so, so we, we begin to think it's foolish, and so our temptation is to either not share it at all, or we decide to doctor it up. And I, and I want to read you what it says in verse 21. I want you to hear this. It says, For since in the wisdom of the world, or for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach 
to save those who believe. I don't know if you underline in your Bible, but I want you to underline the word what. I mean, notice the emphasis here is on the content of what is preached and not the style or the presentation of what is preached. I mean, kind of as a side note here, this is a really important lesson for us as Christians, a challenge to us as Christians. I mean, first, what we preach matters. The message of the cross is the driving force of the church. I mean, you look around, you read the news, and it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of churches where you see it, they have all these different agendas. Seems like they have political agendas, or they have anti-this agenda, or pro-this agenda, or anti-that, pro-that, or multiple things. They have all these different agendas. But the Bible is so clear that we are to have one agenda, and that one agenda is Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, get it everywhere, spread it like wildfire. And when we lose sight of that agenda, the, the church really becomes stupid. The church gets stupid. The church gets weak when we lose sight of that uh, agenda. And when anything replaces Jesus as the focal point, we immediately become ineffective. So the first thing is, is what we preach and what we say, it matters. But the second thing is this. You don't have to be a superstar communicator to communicate the gospel effectively. All you have to do is share the gospel. You don't have to be a superstar communicator to share the gospel effectively. All you have to do is share the gospel. Because look, it says what, not how, but what. The power is in the content, not in the presentation. And then the third thing is this. We work so hard sometimes on doctoring up our presentation of the gospel that oftentimes we forget to share the gospel altogether. You know, we feel like we've got to share these jokes or these engaging exciting stories, or we have to have, you know, a, a cool-looking stage with candles and stuff and, and a great band to precede the teaching of the gospel to, to, you know, make it smoother going down. I don't know. And in doing so, we oftentimes forget about even preaching the gospel. But it's important for us to see that right here it says that people aren't saved through the way we present the gospel. They're saved through the gospel. Again, the power is in the content, not the presentation. Uh, a guy named David Platt, some of you have heard of him, read his book, Radical. He wrote another book called Follow Me, and he said, we've replaced challenging words from Christ with trite phrases in the church. We've taken the lifeblood out of Christianity and put Kool-Aid in its place so that it tastes better to the crowds and the consequences are catastrophic. And that leads perfectly into this next thing. The gospel is not only foolish, but the gospel is offensive. You look at verse uh, 22. And he says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That word stumbling block, it's actually one word in the Greek and it's the Greek word scandalon. Everybody say scandalon. That is where we get our word scandalous. The gospel is scandalous, straight from the Bible. The gospel is shocking. It's improper. It's offensive. And it's offensive because while some think it's crazy just to believe something like that, and they demand a logical explanation for anything they experience or see, others 
who are caught deep in their pride think that they've got what it takes to convince God to let them into heaven. I mean, that's the story of so many of you in this room who grew up in the church. You're impressed by your Bible knowledge. You're impressed by your morality. But sadly, you've not yet come to the realization that you desperately need Jesus to save you. I had a student in my last church in Lubbock. His name was Zach. And he came to my office one day, and we were talking about a bunch of different stuff. And he, he, he grew up in the church. He grew up around the church. He probably, I mean, literally, probably heard the gospel preached to him at least hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times. And yet sitting there in his office, he clearly was not a believer. And it got to the point in the conversation where I said, dude, I just feel like I need to as clearly and as simply as possible share the gospel with you. Can I do that? And he said, yeah, I mean, I've heard it, but yeah. And so I just, I shared it very simply. I mean, basically, dude, we're all born into sin. Uh, we're all going to die, go to hell because of our sin. But God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us, take away that sin. And he proved his power over our sin through his resurrection. And as I'm sharing that with him, I was watching his face, and it was crazy. It was, it was like for the first time, I mean, I promise you, I, did not, I probably stuttered over it more than that. It was probably like even more bare bones of an explanation of the gospel than what I just shared. Nothing special. But as I'm sharing it, I'm watching his face, and the craziest thing is happening. You can see that it's like he's hearing it for the first time ever in his life. And after I shared it, he said these words. He said, dude, I've never heard that before. And I said, liar. <laughs> yeah, you have? And he goes, I know I have, but... I've never heard that before. And right there in the office, he became a Christian because he realized for the first time that he desperately needed Jesus. He had been impressed with his religion. He had been impressed with his Bible knowledge. He had been impressed with his morality, but he realized for the first time he needed Jesus. And you look at verse 25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is offensive because it reveals that even our best attempts fail. I think this verse is kind of funny. I don't, I don't want to mispresent it to you or, or misrepresent this verse, but I think it's kind of funny because it comes across as almost a diss towards Jesus. I mean, listen to what it says. It says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's almost like it's saying God could have done something much more powerful and shocking and amazing to save the world. It's almost like it's saying God could have done something that seemed so much more wise and smart and mind-blowing, but he didn't. Instead, he wanted to prove that even what appeared to be his weakest attempt, he was still able to save the world. I mean, think about it. Which, which is a greater display of God's power? Would it have been greater of him to show his ability to save the world by sending some super man sort of superhero that's flashy with all of his power and flying around and doing all this crazy stuff and then saves the world that way? Or would it be a greater display of his power to send a humble dude from a humble background with a humble demeanor to die a criminal's humble death and use him to save the world? I mean, God's weakness makes our strength look stupid. It makes our strength look weak. God's wisdom makes your wisdom look foolish. Or God's foolishness, sorry, his foolishness makes your wisdom look foolish. 
The gospel is offensive because it reveals that even in your best attempt and your most valiant effort, you're still not good enough. And it all comes back to the reality that there's only two kinds of people on this earth. You're either dead or you're alive. It doesn't matter how smart you are, you're either dead or alive. It doesn't matter how popular you are or aren't, you're either dead or alive. It doesn't matter how wealthy, doesn't matter how moral, doesn't matter how religious you are, you're either dead or alive. And you look at verse 26, he's like, dude, don't forget this. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Look at verse 27. The two most important words in all of Scripture— but God. We saw it already today. We saw it last week. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because of his great love for you, even while you were dead in your sin, he made you alive through Jesus. Romans 5 8 says, but God. Changes everything. But God shows his love for us in this. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 goes on to say, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You look at verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it says, and because of him you are in. Not because of you, but because of him you are in. The only difference between somebody who's dead and somebody who, who is alive is Jesus. It's not a heartbeat or a pulse. It's not like an accomplishment or family tradition or church attendance. It is Jesus. And God is pursuing you because you're dead and he wants to give you life. And life can only be found in Jesus. That's why Jesus will always be at the center of our story. That's why I said last week, the only thing I have to offer you, the only thing we have to offer you is Jesus. And my hope is that when people ask, like they will see that the thing that we get most excited about, the thing that's at the center of everything we're doing here is Jesus. And the last thing is the gospel's powerful. You look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and, and I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel is powerful. Specifically, the gospel is powerful in its simplicity. Deep theological understanding is great. That's, that's awesome. The ability to expound and talk about and understand deep theological ideas, that's a great thing. However, it does not take a deep theological explanation of the gospel or a deep theological understanding of the gospel 
for somebody to respond to the gospel and forever be changed by the gospel. The gospel is powerful in its simplicity. My senior year in college, I, I got to experience one of the coolest things. Uh, there was a guy, his name was Brandon Allen. He played football. Everybody called him Hollywood. He played, played football at the school I went to in Arkansas. And uh, in, in, I don't remember how we, we started becoming friends, I think, through playing basketball at the rec center. And this guy was not a believer. And this guy, just kind of give you an idea of what he was like. He was like, this guy was the leader on the team, like not just on the field, but off the field. He was an incredible athlete, linebacker, always making big plays. So everybody listened to what he had to say on the field. But off the field, like the party he was at was the party everybody on the team was at. He was a leader on and off the field. He's a big dude. So we started hanging out, playing basketball together, and we'd have conversations about Jesus, but he didn't believe in Jesus. But then one day, craziest thing happened. Uh, he came and asked me and a, a friend of mine, he said, hey, uh, it, was, it was almost Easter time. <clears throat> it was almost Easter time in uh, the, the, the school. Uh, there was a group on, on campus that was going to show um, The Passion of Christ, that movie that came out. It, was, it came out really close to that time. And uh, so we got him thinking about it. And he, he, came, he came to me and a buddy of mine, and he said, hey, do you all have the movie, The Passion of the Christ? I, I want to watch it. And totally caught us off guard. And I was like, yeah, we got it. And so he said, cool, can I borrow it? And we're like, yeah, you can borrow it. He takes it, and he walks out the door. He comes back in, and he looks at me, and it's like a Friday afternoon. He says, hey, I'm not going to watch this by myself, Wadlow. Uh, you want to watch it with me? I was like, yeah, sure, I'll watch it with you. And uh, he says, cool, uh, let's watch it tonight uh, in my, my dorm at 10. And so uh, I'm like, well, Chris, my... Uh, my, my, he, I, he asked me to watch it that night at 10. I'm thinking, well, crud, that stinks. I had, I, had a, I had a date that night, so I had to call the girl and be like, sorry, hanging out with the bro tonight. That didn't go over very well. But uh, anyways, he said, meet me at my dorm. And I'm thinking we're going to watch it up in his dorm room, a uh, little TV in there. And I'm thinking we better be watching it up in there because he lived in the athlete's dorm. And the athlete's dorm on Friday night is crazy loud because um, people coming in and out. So I walk over to the dorm, and he's down in the lobby on the big screen, putting the DVD in on the big screen in the dorm. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be interesting. I, I, I hope that we can even watch the movie, you know, because it's going to be so loud in here. And uh, at this point, you know, still early, sort of, in the evening, and uh, all the lights are off, just me and him in there. And there's like a couch here. Uh, there's, a, there's a couch here. There's a couple comfy seats here, and then a couple tables with metal chairs and stuff around. And I'm sitting on the couch. He puts the DVD in. He comes and sits right next to me on the couch. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, this is awkward. Uh, but uh, we start watching the movie, and it's crazy what started to happen. So the first couple comes in, loud, obnoxious, and uh, they bust through the door. And as soon as they see what's on the TV, dead silent. And they come and they stand behind the couch, and they're watching a couple minutes later, another couple comes busting in, loud, crazy, obnoxious. They see what's on the TV, dead silent. They come stand behind the couch and start watching. A couple minutes later, same thing happens. Come stand behind the couch, start watching. A couple minutes later, and I mean over and over, people keep coming in. And then these people that were standing behind the couch begin to move, and they come sit next to me in Hollywood on the couch. And then they sit on that couch, and then they sit in these chairs, and then all these chairs are full, and then they start pulling up metal chairs and sitting in the metal chairs. Eventually all the seats are gone and more people keep coming in or just standing there in the lobby watching this movie. Dead silent the whole night. So we get to the end of the movie. Lobby's full of people. And slowly people just begin to trickle out. 
And, and I'm, I'm just th- I'm thinking, like, this is crazy. Like, they've just watched Jesus, who most of them don't believe in, be crucified. Some of them probably seeing, hearing this for the first time, really. And they slowly begin to trickle out, and eventually it's just me in Hollywood again, sitting on the couch in the dark, awkwardly. <laughs> in Hollywood, he gets up and he goes, and he pulls the DVD out, out of the DVD player, flips on the light, and there's a little chair by the TV, and immediately he just sits down, and he just begins to weep. Now I'm like, okay, now this is really awkward. <laughs> but it was incredible. I said, bro, you all right, man? And he goes, dude, I had no idea. The gospel in its simplicity is so powerful. And so here it is. You were born dead. Kind of like a stillborn baby, you were born dead. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and our sin makes us dead. The one thing that you were created for, you don't have. And it's weird because even though some of you aren't sure what that is, you know deep down that the one thing that you were created for, you don't have. You're missing it. And so most people, this is what they do. Many of you, this is what you're doing. You're trying to fill that need that you know you have. You're trying to fix that problem that you know you have. And you're doing that by going to things like money or sex or trying to find acceptance and belonging in these different groups. You're trying out all these different things and what happens is you go to one of these things and once you get it and you have it, you realize real quickly that it doesn't fulfill you like you thought it was going to fulfill. You realize it doesn't take care of that deep down thing that you have that you know is missing. And so you move on to the next thing. Many of you guys, it's you move on to the next girl. Many of you girls, it's you move on to the next guy. Some of you move from guy to girl and back to guy. Some of you move, okay, money didn't fix it, so I'll go to trying to join this group. And it's not filling it, so you hop from one thing to another. That's how you're trying to fix the problem. Others of you, you're trying to fix the problem through religion, good morals, and going to church. But that's not fixing the problem. You still know that deep down inside, there's something in there that's not right that you're missing. And it's because the one thing you were created for, you don't have. But God. He chose to fix the problem by sending a guy by the name of Jesus. And, and when you look at this Jesus, it's really not what you probably expected when you think about, okay, if God was going to send somebody to save the world, this is not who you thought of that he would send. This guy was poor homeless most of his life, came from a really small, obscure town that nobody knew about. He was born from a young woman who'd never had sex before in her life. 
humble dude. Then he, then he lives this perfect life. And in the midst of living this perfect life, never sinning, never doing anything wrong or hurting anybody or being even angry in a sinful way towards somebody, he does all these crazy miracles. And then he says some crazy stuff. He says that he's God, and he says, you know what, I'm going to prove to you that I'm God by dying, and then I'm going to come back to life because only one person has power over life and death, and that's God. I'm going to show you that's me. And he says, you know what, I'm going to save you from your sins because the penalty of your sin is death, and so I'm going to die the death you should have died. I'm going to do that. I'm going to die for you. That's what he says. And everybody thought he was crazy until he actually did it. He was accused of things that didn't really happen. People got hacked off because of the crazy stuff that he was saying, and it was crazy. And so they arrested him. They treated him like a criminal, the worst of criminals. They beat him to the point of hardly being recognizable as human, the Bible says. History says. And then they executed him like they would have executed the worst of criminals on a cross, which is how they did that back then. And then they buried him in a grave, and he was in a grave for three days. And after three days... He came back to life, proving to be true everything that he had said. And the Bible tells us that over 500 people witnessed him post-death. And he began to teach them. He began to do other miraculous things among them. And then he left, and he lives today still as a mediator between us and God. The only thing standing between you and God is Jesus. You need Jesus. The only way to get to God is through Jesus. The only thing that separates somebody who's dead and alive is who? Jesus. And the Bible is very clear that if you come to the place in your life, in your heart, where you admit that you don't have what it takes, and you believe and put your trust in the reality that Jesus does have what it takes to save you, then you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's foolish. It's offensive, but it's powerful. And God is pursuing you because he knows you're dead and he wants to give you life. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.